Well, it was the death of a grand old ballpark. For more than 60 years, the stadium at the corner of 21st and Lehigh had been the home of the Philadelphia Athletics, and then after that, the Philadelphia Phillies. Scheib Park was a Philadelphia institution. And yet by the 1960s, the ballpark and the neighborhood around it had begun to deteriorate, and when the Phillies played their last game there in 1970, already in the first inning, the sound of hammering and sawing could be heard from all over the ballpark, people trying to pry loose and take away one last souvenir. There was a fire in the stadium the year following, In the years after that, weeds began to grow up all over the field. And finally, in 1976, Mayor Rizzo said that it was time for the whole thing to come down. It was a time to tear down. And yet, if you know the story of that property, you know that soon it was also, once again, time to build. Because in 1981, Deliverance Evangelistic Church bought that property with a vision for a Christ-centered community that would serve the neighborhood. They built a community center for ministry. They raised homes for the elderly. Eventually, they built a very large sanctuary for the worship of God. All of these events are beautifully described in a book by Bruce Kuklick, which has a title taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, To Everything a Season. You see, in the economy of God, there is a time and a season for everything, A time to tear down sometimes, and then again a time to build up. A season to play baseball, sometimes even a postseason to play baseball, but also a season for advancing the ministry of the church, the gospel, everything in its God-given time. We find this perspective in Ecclesiastes 3. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. You'll find it on page 554, the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3. It occurs to me that after everything else that the preacher has said about the vanity and futility of human existence, we might well have expected him to say something very different than he does say about time, something more discouraging. He might have said, for example, that time is short, that we really never have time to do everything that we would like to do. Or he might have talked about the tyranny of time, the way it controls us and governs us. You find things like this in some of the ancient writings. I was interested in what Plautius had to say. He was bemoaning the stress caused by the latest timekeeping device, namely the sundial, And he said this, The gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish the hours. Confound him who has cut and hacked my days so wretchedly into small pieces. Confound him who in this place has set up a sundial. The preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes might also have said that time is fleeting, that we are running out of time, and that once it is gone, it can never be recovered. I wonder if you know the want to add that the American educator Horace Mann once wrote, Lost, yesterday, sometime between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes. 
And then he wrote, No reward is offered, for they are gone forever. These are all things that the preacher might have said, but did not. Instead, he wrote what you see before you, a poem about the orderliness of time as God has ordained it. A very famous poem, I think famous uh, even to people who have not read the Bible or are not very familiar with the Bible, particularly because the birds popularized it in the 1960s. But here is the poem. It begins with a summary statement. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then you have the following lyric by way of explanation. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Now, I suppose everyone recognizes the beauty of these lines in any language, their rhythm, their repetition, their sense of orderly completeness. And yet I should say that some scholars believe that the perspective of this poem is almost totally pessimistic. They believe that here the preacher is so trapped by the tyranny of time that he becomes fatalistic about his existence. Yes, there's a time for this and there is a time for that, but there's nothing anyone can really do about it, no matter how hard you try. And so critics complain, I'm quoting some of their words here, that the God of this chapter is an absolute and arbitrary master that Kohelet feels imprisoned by the sequence of time and rebels because this is what he must go through without knowing why, end quote. I wonder if part of the difficulty for some of these commentators is their discomfort with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That rather than finding encouragement and hope in God's governance of time and his predestination of human events, they see him instead as a random deity. Certainly get that sense in the Abingdon Bible commentary, which gives the following heading for Ecclesiastes 3. Do you think this is an apt summary? Hopelessness of struggle against an arbitrary God. Is that really the perspective of this poem? Keep in mind that chapter 2 ended with a strong affirmation of the enjoyment that we find wherever God is present. And wherever we receive life's blessings as a gift from him. Notice as well what is said down in verse 11, where it speaks of the timeliness of God's ordering of human events. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Far from being a fatalist, the preacher has come to a proper appreciation of the sovereignty of God over time and eternity. 
And from this poem, I believe we learn many important truths about God and about His Son and about our own stewardship of time, which may be the most precious thing we own. So let's begin with what we can learn about God, about His character, about His sovereignty. That's where the, the poem begins, doesn't it? God is not mentioned directly by name in these verses, but he is mentioned in the verses that follow and that also speak of the subject of time. We'll consider those on a later occasion. And notice as well that the opening verse describes these things as happening under heaven. That's a different expression than we've had to this point in this book, everything under the sun. No, later the preacher will be explicit about the fact that God himself is in heaven. And so all of these things that happen in this time-bound universe are under the authority of the God who rules in heaven. He is sovereign over time and over what happens during time. Notice the sweeping breadth of the opening verse. For everything, there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. There's nothing that happens outside of the will and the timing of God. The words of our own Westminster Shorter Catechism, His holy, wise, and powerful providence governs all His creatures and all their actions. The scope of God's sovereignty, of course, is further emphasized in everything in the poem that follows, this parallel series of related opposites each pair forming what an English teacher would call a merism, a figure of speech in which two parts together make up a whole. So, for example, there's a very uh, uh, familiar example of this kind of literary device in the opening verse of the Bible. It speaks of God creating the heavens and the earth. In other words, he has created everything there is, the whole universe. And similarly, each of the pairs in this poem makes up a larger whole. You speak of birth and death, you're really talking about the whole of human existence. Weeping and laughing, and laughing that's the full range of, of human emotion and so forth. There's something comprehensive about each of these pairs that's showing the scope of God's sovereignty. And something very comprehensive about the list as a whole. There are 14 pairs in all, which is twice seven, if you know your mathematics, and, of course, seven is often the number of biblical completion and perfection. This is twice that. There's a completion to the sovereign care of God over time. And if you look at the things described in these pairs, I mean, it's almost everything you can think of in human experience, everything from birth to death, from war to peace, everything in between. And the point of all of that is God is that God is the king of time. He regulates our minutes and our seconds. He rules our moments and our days. Nothing in life happens without his superintendence. Everything happens when it happens because God is sovereign over time. And furthermore, there is a, a definite orderliness to the way that God does things, a, a precision in his sovereignty, absolute in his authority over space and time. He puts everything in its own time and place. You might say it this way, that God's sovereignty has a chronology. That's been true from the very beginning of time when God divided uh, the work of creation into its days. 
We see it with every change of season, the turning of summer into autumn, the coming of springtime after winter, the rhythms of creation testifying to the orderliness of our Creator. And here in this chapter we see the same sovereign order applied to human activities and relationships. A season for everything, not just the four seasons, but season in the sense of a fixed time, a predetermined purpose. But in the divine economy, there is a suitable occasion or appropriate opportunity for everything that happens. Now that is far from being fatalistic. The preacher is not saying here that God is arbitrary and therefore there's nothing we can do about what happens. His point rather is that there is a fitness to what happens. God does everything at just the right time. As we look at the list of the things that God has done, and let me just say these are all things that God does. Sometimes people think of Ecclesiastes as a list of human activities, and they are human activities. In fact, we could take this list and compare it to the life of King Solomon himself, and we would find him doing many of these things. He was a builder of buildings, a planter of gardens, a gatherer of proverbs. But before these things were ever human activities, they are also, and first of all, divine activities. And let me emphasize here that there is a completeness of what, of what God does here. You, the, the, the sovereign God who gives order to time is not one-dimensional. Each of the activities in this list has its opposite, and yet both of them are under the sovereignty of God. You think of birth and death the two appointments that every person must keep. Well, both the cradle and the deathbed are, are, are follow God's timetable. He's the one who brings life into the world. That's why David praised him in Psalm 139 and spoke, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God is also the one who appoints the time of death. Man's days are determined, said Job, and the number of his months is with you, he said to his Creator, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You see, the Lord of life also has sovereign power over death. You cannot live any longer than the Lord has prescribed, said Martin Luther, nor die any sooner. And so the time of birth and the time of death are under the sovereignty of God. And that's not just true of birth and death, but of other things in this poem. God is involved in both planting and plucking up what is planting, planted. He, there's a time for building up, and there's a time for breaking down, and God does both of them. I won't take the time to give examples of all of these things, but you can read about it in the Bible. Think of the Tower of Babel and the way God tore that down when it was built for human ambition. Or think of the way that he built up a house for Israel and a, a kingdom for David. You see, the complete work of God, not the one-dimensional work, but the two-dimensional work, the complete work, involves both creation and devastation. And I emphasize that because many people would prefer a one-dimensional deity. They like to think of God giving life, but not so much of God appointing the time of death. They'd rather see him planting and building than uprooting and tearing down. I don't think we can take God by halves. I think we have to see his complete character, his complete work in the world. There is a time to kill and a time to heal. God says this about himself in the days of Moses. He said, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. 
He's not an either-or God. He is a both-and God, depending on what time it is. You see, according to God's schedule, there is both a time to love and a time to hate. Most Many people would like to think of God only as a God of love without considering the reality of His wrath, but even His hatred is one of His perfections. It is right and good for God to hate every wicked deed and to bring evil to judgment. With God, there's both a time for peace and a time for war. It's true that God has promised peace on earth, but until it comes in all of its perfect shalom, we are living in wartime. It's true spiritually as we wage war against the devil and all his forces with the word of God and with prayer. It's also true in the world as righteous nations fight to protect their people and to war for justice. There is a time for each of these things. The point is to get the complete picture of God. Only then can you know him and understand your place in his world. Take into account the full biblical teaching about his character. Otherwise, you will only end up with half of God. God makes time for every matter under heaven because at the right time, everything in this poem is fully in keeping with his character, birth and death, mourning and laughter, exclusion and embrace, war and peace. All of this is part of the character of God as this poem presents it to us. But now I want to go one step farther than that because... I think we can connect this poem to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This poem is teaching us about the character of Almighty God and therefore also teaching us about the Son who shares in all of his divine perfections. Now, what would we learn if we considered these various times and what they have to tell us about Jesus? If God is sovereign over the seasons, then Jesus Christ is the Lord of time. What a great phrase it is at the beginning of the last stanza of the hymn that we sang earlier. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time. It's a great expression for the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ over time and over eternity. And as we see Jesus in the Gospels going about his earthly ministry, we see a Savior who always knew what time it was. There was a time for him to be born. And the Scripture says that when the fullness of time had come, this is Galatians chapter 4, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. There was also a day appointed for Jesus to die. And He died on that day, not a day sooner than that and not a day afterwards. Religious leaders had been plotting His crucifixion. They had been trying to put Him to death as soon as they could, but the the Gospels say that His hour had not yet come. But then the hour did come. And Jesus died on the cross, the the Scripture says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans chapter 5. And he, He rose again at the right time, too, on the third day, just as the Scriptures had promised. You see, from His birth to His death and then on to His resurrection, Jesus did everything timely in His saving work. And as we see Him go about His work in the Gospels, we see Him knowing the right time to do all of these other things as well. Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He was replanting his vineyard, the people of God. He also knew when it was time to heal. He performed all of the miracles of the the kingdom, making the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and the blind to see, the timely performance of these healing miracles of the kingdom. He knew when it was time to break down. Think of the way he drove the, the money changers out of the temple. 
He also knew when it was time to build up. Think of the way that he established his church on the the rock of the confession that Peter made, that Jesus is the Christ. And then think of the way that Jesus had the full range of human emotion. There were times when it was time to mourn. And so the man of sorrows wept the tears of grief at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And so he cried the tears of a good shepherd over the lost sheep of the city of Jerusalem. He, he also knew how to celebrate, though, how to laugh, how to rejoice. We read about it, for example, in Luke chapter 10. The, the disciples come back from their first mission trip, and the Bible says that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. It was a spirit of exultation and great joy. You see, he rejoiced in the work that God was doing. When it came to personal relationships, Jesus always knew the time as well. When it was time to embrace, think of the embrace that he gave to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the other lost sinners who knew that they needed a Savior. And yet Jesus also knew when to refrain from embracing, the way he refrained from embracing the scribes and the Pharisees and all of those proud religious people who insisted they were already righteous enough for God. Or think of... What, what uh, about the way Jesus knew when it was time to keep silent and when to speak? That's spoken about here in verse 7. There is a time for both of those things. And Jesus did a lot of talking during the three short years of his ministry, telling stories, explaining the law, preaching the gospel. But then when the time came for the trial of his life, Jesus fulfilled the scripture by suffering in silent innocence. He did not speak in his own defense. It was a time to keep silent. See, all through life, Jesus knew the right time for everything, and he still does. He knows the time to love, showing mercy to lost and needy sinners who come to him and ask him to be their savior. He also knows the time to hate, standing against evil and injustice. He, he knows the time for war. Soon it will be the time for peace. And the Son of God will make wars to cease to the ends of the earth. Psalm 46, to bring us the everlasting peace of the kingdom of God. You see, from beginning to end, Jesus has perfect timing. God's sovereignty over all the seasons, gloriously displayed in his life and in his saving work. But now I want us to consider what practical benefit we can draw from all of that. Because I think the example of Jesus calls us to make the best use of our own time. Indeed, here is one of the best ways to avoid the vanity of life without God. It's by knowing what to do with your time. The way that we spend our time is the way that we spend our lives. And if we call ourselves the followers of Christ, then we need to be people who know what time it is. I want to suggest three practical ways to apply these truths about God and about His Son to the life of Christian discipleship. And the first is very simple. Wait for God's timing. Wait for God's timing. Because if it is true that God is sovereign over time and that our Lord Jesus always makes perfect use of time, then we should trust God to know the right time for everything. Particularly because some of the things on this list are things that are outside of our control anyway. The time of birth and death, for example, or the times of war and peace. It's true of many other events in life. They are beyond our control. And yet most of us prefer to manage our own agenda. And that makes us pretty quick to to criticize God for his timing. But, you know, really, instead of getting impatient with God 
are pushing ahead of his timetable, it would be better for us to hurry up and wait for God. We should wait like Isaiah waited when he said, Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Or like David who said, I trust you, Lord. Psalm 31, my times are in your hand. That should be the prayer of every believer. It should be the prayer for you if you're impatient with something that God is doing or isn't doing in your life right now. It's a wonderful hymn that takes David's prayer and puts it into a broader context. It goes like this, My times are in thy hand. My God, I wish them there. I wonder if you can say that, that you wish your times in God's hands. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. That's the prayer of someone who trusts in the sovereignty of God over time. Now here is a second practical application. Live your whole life knowing that there is a time for you to die. Live your whole life knowing that there is a time for you to die. The Scripture says, this is Hebrews chapter 9, it is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Will you be ready when the time comes? Many people, maybe most people, are not ready. Consider the words of the Viscount de Turenne, who was mortally wounded in the Battle of Salzbach in 1675. He wistfully said, I did not mean to be killed today. But you know, many people don't intend to die the day that they do die. By contrast, think of the example set by one 65-year-old widow from Amsterdam. This was a couple of years ago. She was totally prepared. After the death of her husband, she very carefully planned her own funeral down to all of the music and so forth. And then one, one day, the next, the following year, she went to pay her respects at the tomb of her husband, and she laid down and died right there at the gravesite, apparently of a heart attack. Uh, they found the woman's last will and testament in her handbag next to her, and her name was already engraved on the headstone. Now, I think that's pretty well prepared to die. <laughs> Better than most people. Although, you know, truthfully, anyone who trusts in Christ ought to be ready to die at any time. Because if you are a believer in Christ, heaven is your inheritance. And you know that. You're secure in that, and so you ought to be ready to die at any time. Death is fearful in itself, of course. It's a great enemy. And yet we ought to be prepared for it by faith in Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that? Oh, there's no time like the present for putting your trust in Jesus. When it comes to believing in Him and receiving the free gift of eternal life, there is no time to lose. There is not just a time to be born, but a time to be born again. The Scripture says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so it will be for you if you put your trust in Jesus. And when you do that, and this is the third application, make good use of whatever time you have. Make good use of whatever time you have. Surely the most precious commodity we have, the priceless currency God has given to us for doing the work of his kingdom, what Stephen Alford has called a fragment of eternity given by God to man as a solemn stewardship 
And I think as we consider our own stewardship, we have to confess time also happens to be one of the most difficult things we have to manage. All of us have the same amount of time on a daily basis anyway. The question is how we will spend it or whether we will waste it. And so the Scripture commands us to redeem the time, Ephesians chapter 5, because the days are evil. The best way to do that, the best way to redeem your time is to turn it in for something, is to use it for the glory of God and for the kingdom of Christ. But when we begin to consider all of the things that we are to do with our time, as they are described here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, surely we see a great need for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. There are times in life and ministry to start something, planting, building, giving birth. There are also times in life or ministry when something is supposed to come to an end, some project, some institution, something that we're involved in. It's time to uproot and break down, and that's the time for it in the, in the plan of God. What wisdom it takes to know the difference between those two times, some of the hardest decisions we have in life. The Bible teaches us to be timely in our emotional responses, knowing when it is time to weep with those who weep and when it is time to rejoice with those who rejoice. The Bible teaches us to have that kind of wisdom for the timing of our relationships, when it is time to embrace someone, to bring them in, when it is time to exclude them from our plans and from our priorities. And maybe in our shepherding work, even from the church, there is a time for all of these things. Wisdom comes in knowing the difference. There are times when it is important to speak up and times when it is better to shut up. You see, wisdom in the control of our speech, times when it would be better to hold our tongues. Redeeming the time requires wisdom in the use of our possessions. There are times for us to gather and also times for us to scatter. There are times for us to keep looking for something that is lost but also times to stop looking and give something up for lost instead. You see, all of these are difficult decisions about the redemption of time. There is a time for every matter under heaven, and all of this will require very wise decision-making. May I encourage you then to make a regular practice of asking what time it is. Lord, what kind of time is this for me, or what kind of time is it in this situation? What does wisdom require here? And then to ask the Lord for the wisdom that he loves to give to all who come to him in faith, including the wisdom to know what time it is. Is it a time to break down or build up? Help me to know, Lord. Should I embrace or exclude? Am I speaking because I want to say something or because I have something to say? See, all of these things require the wisdom, the prayerful wisdom of the Holy Spirit. One day very soon, Jesus will come again at just the right time, the Bible tells us, and then time will be no more. In the meantime, let us follow the example of the timeless prayer of Moses in Psalm 90 and ask the Lord to teach us to number our days aright. Our Father in heaven, we pray for the heart of wisdom that Moses sought to number his days. Lord, we would pray that not just for our days, but for our hours down to the minute, Lord, so that we would make good use of the time that you have given to us, redeeming it for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.